Galatians 2, 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what was destroyed, then, re then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thanks, RJ. Well, good morning again, church. Morning. Uh, if you are new, uh, just to introduce myself, my name is RJ. I'm one of the pastors here in Tungabi Baptist Church. And again, it's great to have you here with us. Uh, just to begin, allow me to say a word of prayer. Father, we recognize that your word... It's able to confront, but at the same time, it's able to comfort us. So, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you will now confront us with your word, while at the same time giving us comfort. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a confrontational person at all. I would avoid conflict as much as possible. I even tend to agree, even though I disagree, just for the sake of avoiding conflict. But... Obviously, that's only to a certain degree that as most people, if I believe that something is being done wrong or something is absolutely important, or if it's life-threatening, uh, of course, I would confront someone because it's necessary. And this is exactly what I had to do a couple of weeks ago with Pastor James. While we were in a Christian conference, I, it came to, I came to a clear conviction that I had to confront him. So while we were having breakfast, I thought this would be the best time to do it. Agnes and Tash were there on the breakfast table with me. And we've, when we finished eating, I looked at him sincerely. And with a calm but serious voice, I said, I have to confront you with something very serious that you preached last week. And he was concerned. He said, what is it? Well, I said, you cannot tell people 
to put essential oils in their drinking water <laughs> because it's poisonous, according to the DHA. <laughs> now, the joke was uh, a couple of weeks ago that he was telling everyone to put essential oils in their soda water because it's refreshing or it gives a, a nicer taste. But, you know, here in Galatians 2, we see the first and the biggest church confrontation. Uh, the, the apostle, sorry, the, the gospel writer Luke, he records, this, he records this in Acts 15. But here we see a personal insight from the apostle Paul. And this issue is much more important than essential oils, obviously, because the gospel is at stake. Salvation depends on this confrontation. The future of the Christian church was dependent on this moment. And as we've been saying, that there is only one gospel. It's either you get it wrong or you get it right. It's like the password on your phones. It doesn't matter if you are close to getting it. One small mistake, you are locked out. There's no consolation prize for getting it close. In a way, the gospel or the good news is your password to eternal life. It's your password to freedom. The gospel is the thing that makes Christianity Christianity. It's the essential core of the faith. It's the non-negotiable truth that you need to understand and to accept in order to receive eternal life. And so this is why it was so important. And this is why Paul writes to the Galatian church because they were getting the gospel wrong. And then Paul gives us a clear example of what happens when you get the gospel wrong and why we should care about it and what we should do about it. And so... I want us to look at three things today that will help us understand the gospel better and how we should apply it today. And this is very important, once again, because we are not just, you know, we are just as inclined to get it wrong just as they did back then. And the three things today that I want to point out are these. The need to confront false teachers, the need to correct wrong theology, and thirdly, the need to continue in the gospel of Christ, right? The need to confront, the need to correct, and the need to continue. So firstly, the need to confront. Look at verse 12. Paul said that for, for before certain men came from James, he, or Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, again, let's start by just appreciating the gravity of this situation. This would have been headline news for the, for the Christians at the time. The confrontation of two great leaders. On one side, the Apostle Paul, who used to persecute and kill Christians. But after encountering the Lord Jesus, he was converted and is now the front runner of the Christian movement. He's been traveling around planting churches. And on the other side is one of the first and original closest disciples of Jesus and was the group-appointed leader at the time. And after Jesus went back to heaven, we see Peter in the book of Acts leading the movement with his preaching. His first gospel sermon led to the conversion of 3,000 people. And yet here we are told Peter is having trouble getting the gospel right. Why? What's the problem? See, Peter has accepted Gentiles or non-Jews to the Christian faith. In Acts chapter 11, God has spoken to him, giving him a vision that Gentiles can now be included in the, in the faith and should be included in fellowship. And so Peter has shared the gospel to them. And so they believed. 
And so they welcomed them into the community of believers. Now that's a great and huge deal. Because here's the context. Remember, Gentiles were considered to be unclean, unholy, unworthy, because they don't practice the Jewish ceremonial laws. They don't follow the Jewish diets, the Jewish festivals, the, the clothing restrictions, the Sabbath laws and circumcision and all that. And so the Jews believe that Gentiles are unclean, right? They're not worthy to worship God. They're not worthy to stand before God. And so they don't hang out with them or else their uncleanness will rub off to them. But because of the gospel, Peter has now embraced these Gentiles in the faith. So he says that it doesn't matter that, that they don't follow the Jewish laws anymore because of what Jesus has done. So they are now part of our church. But then when a group of Jews called the circumcision group showed up and they started questioning and pressuring Peter to make them follow the Jewish custom. And we're told Peter gave in. And so he suddenly stopped eating with them and then other Christians started to follow as well. And so when Paul found out, he confronted Peter publicly about this because the issue is not just about who he's eating with, but Paul knew that the salvation of people and the future of Christianity is at stake because this group is essentially saying that in order to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus, yes, but you must also add something else. And so this Jewish group didn't want to hang out with the Gentiles because they believe they're unclean and they're not worthy to stand before God. They're not justified, right? And Peter's separation with the, with the Gentiles communicates to everyone that the circumcision group is right. All right? So you don't hang out. Who you hang out, sorry, shows whose side you're on. But Paul reads the situation rightly because he says that the only reason that Paul is doing this, sorry, that Peter is doing this, is that he is afraid, that he's scared how he's going to look and what his fellow Jews are going to say to him. But the problem is, because of his action, verse 13, it says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, who is another leader, was led astray. All right, so that's the context. The issue is not just discrimination, but it communicates or demonstrates the wrong gospel. The, the problem is hypocrisy that leads people away. It means we have to preach the right gospel, and we also have to demonstrate how the gospel is lived out, especially in the church, because our action will help verify the truth. And I think it is right that often the biggest hindrance to the spread of the gospel is not only preaching a false gospel, but the hypocrisy of Christians in a church who, who believe one thing but live out another. That people leave the church or they abandon the Christian faith or believe in the wrong gospel when they see people like Peter who do things out of fear for people's admiration, but are unwilling to stand up for the gospel. That once we value the, the, the validation of others more than the validation of God, we will start to compromise the gospel. And again, don't forget that this is happening not so long after Jesus left. 
maybe in a span of 15 to 20 years. And if someone like Peter, a great, wonderful leader, can get the gospel wrong and is unable to live out the gospel, how susceptible are we? It means we need a pole in our life. We need poles in our church. We need someone who can open our eyes and confront us when we are not getting the gospel right. We need to have a culture in our church of loving confrontation for the sake of the spread of the gospel. It means we need to be vulnerable enough. We need to be humble enough that we are able to see the hypocrisy in each other's lives and we can confront one another lovingly. Because eternal life is at stake. Life is at stake. The letter in, in here is a, is a confrontational letter about wrong theology. And Paul uses this to confront Peter to point out his wrong Christian living. And so Paul corrects Peter and the Galatian church. Which leads us to our second point, the need to correct. Here's the correction in chapter 2, verse 16. It says a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's short and simple, but it's really loaded with meaning. Now, let me just explain what justification is. To justify someone or something, to justify something does not mean to change something, but to really change our view of the thing. All right, sorry, that's a bit uh, confusing. Let me explain. When you get to work and you're, and you're late, right? And your boss is right there in the office. And as you enter the office, he's, you can tell that he's not happy. And he asks you, why are you late again? And you said, well, my wife was giving birth last night. And I came straight from the hospital this morning. Suddenly, his anger turns to joy. And, and he might even send you home. See, you're still late. It doesn't change the situation. But you are justified because of your excuse. Or you walk into a room, walk into, into the room, and one of your kids, the younger one, is crying. And the older one is holding a hammer. And you ask, what happened? And the crying child says, he hit me with a hammer. So you ask, did you do it? He answered, yes. Yes, I did. But he was playing with the hammer that you left in the room. I tried to stop him because he was about to hit the TV, and I accidentally hit him as I was trying to grab it. And you thought to yourself, well, that is a good reason. Son, you are justified. See, to justify is not to undo the event, but to change your understanding of what happened or your view of the person. And see, the essence of being a Christian is this word justification. To be a Christian is to be justified. It means that God sees you in a totally different way. It doesn't mean that your sins suddenly didn't happen. It doesn't mean that God suddenly forgets about it. It's still there. He, he can never forget anything. He's, he's omniscient. It means that Christ paid for your sins and he dwells in you. So when God looks at you, he sees his son. And so God looks at you now in a different way. Like he sees us and he loves us the way he loves his son. Why? Because we are justified. 
Now, this is a very, very important truth because it is so typical for people to say, you know, to become a Christian, you need to change your sexual behavior first. Or you need to make a big promise that you will turn your life around. Or you need to be willing to come to church and, and serve and give and so on to become a Christian. Now, all of these things are involved, but this is not the essence of Christianity. To, be, to become a Christian is not about becoming a good person. It's one of the results of being a Christian, but it's not the essence of Christianity. When you become a Christian, it means you are justified. And I think this is why people often doubt their salvation because they wonder, why, why don't I feel different? Or why doesn't my life look any different? That they still struggle with the same sin, they still feel like, like they don't feel like a new and transformed person, and they ask, am I really a Christian? But see, it's not about your feeling, it's not even about your view of yourself. Justification is God's view of you. It means that you're accepted, it means that you're righteous in God's eyes. You might still see you, but God sees his son in you. That's what justification is. And that's why in verse 21, it says, I do not set aside the grace of God, but it says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, most Bibles would use the word righteousness, but it's really the same word that's being used. It's really the word for justification that Paul has been using. Because when we use the word righteousness, we often think of moral behavior. We think of moral perfection and holiness. But righteousness is really a relationship word. It means to, be, to make the relationship right again. To justify the relationship. But for example, if you pay, if you pay your electricity bills on time, it means you're right with the electricity company, that your payment justifies you, and so you are made right. If you are loving towards a friend or a spouse, and you are available, you're honest, you're caring, you will have a right relationship. And if you have offended them, your friend or your spouse, you can either try to justify yourself so that they will change their view of you, or they can try to justify you, meaning somehow they need to find a way to change their view, their mind about you and make their relationship right again, right? See, righteousness really, seems, really means to be justified, to be in a right relationship with someone. And this is what Paul is correcting and what we always need to correct in our own theology because we can either try to justify yourself to God and make yourself righteous before God by the works of the law, or Jesus Christ is the only one that justifies you and make you right, it's one or the other. And so in verse 16, Paul argues this. He says that a person is not justified or made righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, even though we are Jews, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one can be made righteous. He's saying even us Jews, even though we are God's special people, even though we were given the, the law, we still need to be saved by our 
faith. That obeying the law does not save us. Obeying the law doesn't make you right with God. Obeying the law does not add to your salvation. That's the point. Now, do you see why this will be so offensive to a highly moral, religious, law-abiding Jews? Because it makes all their good works seem useless. All that hard work of observing the law, of being circumcised, is pointless, Paul says. And this is why the gospel is offensive to some of you. You're thinking, surely, surely you have to add something else. It can't be that easy by just putting your faith in the Lord Jesus. But Paul said, if you try to add to it, then there's no point of Jesus dying for you. You cannot add to your salvation. In fact, it can compromise your salvation because you are trusting in what you can do and not what Jesus has already done for you. It's like when I ride as a passenger when my wife is driving. Most of the time, I try to close my eyes because when I look ahead, I find myself just wanting to drive. Like my legs is just jerking, wanting to break for her. My arms are, are clenching, wanting to turn the wheel for her, right? But if I try to control the car while she's driving, it will lead to an accident. We won't get there. It doesn't, you know, sorry, we won't, we won't get there. The best way to get to the destination is just to sit back and trust and have faith that we will get there safely. It's through faith that I get to my destination. How do, you be, how do you become a Christian? How can you be saved? Believe that you have nothing to offer. Believe that you can't get to your destination by yourself. It doesn't matter if you come from a good family or a Christian family. It doesn't matter if you have been going and serving in church your whole life. All that doesn't matter, as Paul said. All that matters is that you have put your faith in Christ Jesus. Salvation is by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone. But the gospel is not just what gets us in, Paul argues as well. It's also what keeps us in, and it doesn't just affect people's salvation, it affects people's sanctification. The gospel is not just the entrance, sorry, the entrance, but it is the pathway of life, which is our last point, the need to continue in the gospel. You know, I want to show you our struggle with our Christian faith is really a struggle with our understanding of the gospel. Because often people, after they've been a Christian for quite some time, it is quite common to say uh, or to hear from people, okay, I understand the gospel. Yes, I'm a Christian now. Now I want to move on to the advanced stuff. Like let's, let's study the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. That's the advanced stuff, right? Let's, let's get there. But see, Christianity, Christian growth and maturity is really a growth in our understanding and our application of the gospel. And that's why we, you can see that even Paul, he never ever moves on from the gospel. That your struggle with sin, your struggle with obedience, your struggle with your own identity, your struggle with pride is a struggle to understand the gospel. Because the gospel says, Christ is enough. We said that. That Christ is enough to save me. That the glory and beauty and love and grace of Jesus Christ is enough. And so a search for identity 
and security and significance outside of Christ is really adding on to what Christ has already offered in the gospel. That every person's problem with sanctification is really just a problem with justification as well. Remember, justification, God sees you the way he sees his son, that you're justified. But at the same time, sanctification is allowing yourself to see you, to see yourself as God sees you. That you are now perfect and holy and beautiful and satisfied and secure because Christ lives in you. And so the reason you might be having trouble with your sanctification is you don't really believe or understand your justification. You're not living out your justification. You're not living through it. That sin is essentially not walking in line to the gospel of justification by faith. That the very cause of sin is not believing in the gospel. For example, let's use a sexual sin as an example. Now, some of you, you know what you're doing is wrong. You're saying, I know I shouldn't be doing this. I know it's not a good Christian thing to do. It's not good for me, but I keep going back to it. Well, Paul would say, the reason that you keep going back to it is because you're adding to what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus Christ has given you your self-worth. He has made you beautiful. He's made you perfect. He has reconciled you with God. And that's the only affirmation and intimate relationship you will ever need. See, it's the same gospel. And your sexual sin, Paul would say, is a lack of faith in Christ, that Christ is enough for you. And so you, you tend to seek something else to replace Christ or to add to what Christ has already given. And so do you see that this is the same problem with Peter? Peter was afraid, right? Peter, like, he was not in line with the gospel. He, why was he afraid? Because he's, he's seeking the, the validation of leaders. Why is he after the validation of leaders? Because he doesn't believe that Christ is enough that, to validate him. And so he's adding to what Christ has done for him. That sin is anything in your life that you think you need to have in order to gain security, significance, and satisfaction aside from God. Whether it be sex, career, money, prestige, or even church. That we might be here every week coming to church, serving in church, not because out of gratitude of what Christ has done, but to add what Christ has done so that it feels like God owes us something that we are serving him. But see, we still have a dilemma. How do we, how do we rest in the works of Christ while at the same time living for Christ? Again, look at verse 20 of how Paul solved this problem. It says, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. He's saying, I'm, I'm no longer in charge, but because I have placed all my trust in Christ. But then he says, the life I lived, I live by faith in the Son of God. Do you see what it seems like a contradiction here? Paul says that I don't live my life. And then the next sentence, he says, the life I lived. So which one is it? Well, here's the answer. Because if you read the first part just by itself, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, you will think that all, all you have to do is just sit back, let Christ take control. But then after a while, you'll see that nothing is changing in your life, right? But if you read the second part just by itself, the life I now live, I live in, sorry, the life I now live in the body, 
you will think it's all up to me. Like, I have to keep trying. I need to, keep, to have a stronger faith in obedience and so on. But then after a while, you will start to see that you will fail. But then when you put the two together, what does it mean? It means that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus in me, and I will feel safe, secure, love, and significant. That I can relax. I am free. But at the same time, from my point of view, I will keep on living a life of faith, remembering who I am in Christ, that he loved me and he gave himself for me, that his love for me is my very motivation. It's enough. And so you put those two together, you have rest and you also have motivation. That the Christian life is a life of incredible gratitude, incredible peace so that you can rest but at the same time, it's a life of ongoing journey of living a life of faith that we have to keep reminding ourselves of the gospel that it is our very motivation to keep going, that Christ lives in me. It's a life motivated by the love of Jesus dying for you. The gospel is your rest and your freedom to stop trying because it has been done for you while at the same time, it's your motivation to keep going because Christ is in you. That's the gospel. Now, we're going to sing our next song. So I'll get the, the musicians to come up. But uh, the next song that we're going to sing, and I, I was just thought of this this morning, and I thought it, it's, it'll be very fitting for us. Um, Barry, can you go to just some of the lyrics of the, of the song where it says that, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? And just... You know, as, as we're going to sing this song later on, just focus on these words. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? That there is no more for heaven now to give. That Christ has given everything. There's nothing to add to yourself. You don't have to add anything to your salvation. It's done. It's full. Therefore, He is our joy. He is our righteousness. He is our justification. He is our freedom. And so He is my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace. We can rest because of Jesus. And so, because of this gospel truth, it says, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his, that we, the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. And then we say, oh, how strange and divine that I can sing, all is mine, all is given, yet not I, it's not what, we do, what we've done, but Christ who is in me. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the people that have that has safeguarded it, protected it, fought for it, so that it will be preserved for us. Lord, we pray that we will continue to preserve the good news of your message. We, we pray that we will contend and confront people for the sake of the salvation of other people and do it in a loving way. We pray, Lord, that you will always correct our theology, that we will always return to the, to the beauty and glory of the gospel, that we will grow in our sanctification as we keep reminding ourselves of the glory and wonder and grace of what Jesus has done for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.